The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. What I'd like to do as we get um, ready to dig into a passage from the prophet Jeremiah is read you just one part of one verse from today's passage. And this is the verse. Some of you have heard this before. Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Anybody heard something like that from the Bible at one time or another? So I would like to ask you the question that we all should ask whenever we read Scripture, which is, what does it all mean? Some of you have seen the... uh, the double rainbow all the way across the sky video, which reminds us to ask the question, what does it mean? <laughs> what does this verse mean? And I want you specifically to think about what does this verse mean uh, for how God directs and controls our life and to what extent that is um, within our control and outside of our control and so forth. So if you would take just a minute to think about that. You don't need to share it with anybody else necessarily. But if you have a bulletin, you might want to find the blank space on the back and write down your answer. What do you think that verse means? Can you fire that verse up one more time there so that people can see it while they're thinking about it? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. I want you to remember what your answer to that question is, because we'll come back to it a little bit later. Uh, But before we get into today's text, I want to tell you a little bit more about what this lectionary series means. Um, Now, the the lectionary is just a cycle of biblical readings that goes all year round, and over the course of three years, if you follow the readings from the lectionary, you will have encountered almost all of the text in the Bible. Some of it is... It doesn't cover every little thing, but it covers most of it. And so every week there's an assigned reading from the Old Testament and from the Psalms and from the epistles, the letters uh, of the early church, and from the Gospels. And so each week we're going to read all four of the assigned readings for the day, but we may not talk at length about all of them. Sometimes they actually interact with each other on their own, which is kind of neat. And one of the reasons why I like the lectionary is because it gives us some structure that makes sense for reading the Bible. And if you are a person who has said, I would like to study the Bible, I'd like to have a devotional time that makes sense, but I don't know where to start. I started reading Genesis, and I got to like chapter 49, and I didn't get through the Bible. (laughs) Um, If you do a Google search for lectionary or revised common lectionary, you can find it online very easily. And it it has assigned passages every week. It's a great way to encounter the text of the Bible in in a sensible way. Um, But for this series, what we're going to do is focus on the Old Testament readings. And the Old Testament readings for the next several weeks come from the book 
of the prophet Jeremiah. And so we're going to hop around in the, in the book of Jeremiah a little bit. The, the lectionary does not assign these readings uh, sequentially, but that's okay because, as it turns out, the book of Jeremiah does not appear to have been written, or edited at least, in a totally chronological way. So even if we read it from one, chapter 1 until the end of the book, we would still do things out of chronological order. So it's, it's, not, it's not the worst thing in the world that we'll jump around a little bit. And so as we talk about, as we, as we begin to think about uh, the book of Jeremiah, we need to think about what Jeremiah's role was and, and who he was in the Bible. Jeremiah was one of the prophets of Israel. And when we talk about prophets in the Old Testament, remember, we're not talking about uh, prophets' prophecy in the Nostradamus sense of the word generally. There is some degree of future telling and prediction that happens among the Old Testament prophets, but generally the role of the prophet is to call people's attention to God. And most often, the prophets called their own people to God. So occasionally you see a prophet going to one of the nations outside of Israel, the so-called pagan nations, and calling them to, the one, to worship the one true God. But much, much more often, the prophets are speaking to within their own communities, saying, all of you who are supposed to be the people of God are screwing up in the following 19 ways, and here's the horrible thing that's going to happen to you as a result. And Jeremiah was definitely uh, in that camp. In fact, you can see, if you, we're not going to look at chapter 1 today, but if you were to read uh, chapter 1, it talks, Jeremiah talks about his specific calling. And in, in verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, um, the, the, this is what the Lord said to me. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. God told Jeremiah, you are going to be the one who announces the fate of the nation of Israel. And that particular calling was a really difficult tension for Jeremiah because he loved his people. And yet he was forced at times in his ministry to, to tell them that they were going the wrong way and that they needed to turn from their evil. This kind of tragic conflict that you find in, in the book of Jeremiah. And, and if you read, we're not going to get into too many of these passages in, in our series, but if you read the entire book of Jeremiah, you find many instances of Jeremiah lamenting his fate, that he has to do this. And in fact, he's, he's in many places doubting God's calling openly, saying, why have, you, why have you told me to do this? And where are you? Why have you forsaken the one you've called? And so forth. Um, it's kind of a shame that the lectionary doesn't actually take us to those passages because that would be really um, interesting to see. And maybe we'll look at those another time. But it does actually bring us to several really wonderful passages. And uh, I'm excited to get to those with you in the, in the coming several weeks. The first one of those is from Jeremiah 18, and it's the first 11 verses of Jeremiah 18. And I'm going to read this whole passage. If you'd like to follow along with me, there are red Bibles under your chairs. You can use those if you'd like. If you prefer to use your own and don't know how to find Jeremiah, the best way to do it is to kind of start right in the middle of the Bible and then turn some pages, and you'll probably come to it. By the way, if you don't have a Bible at home and would like one, you're welcome to take one of these red Bibles with you. We have plenty of them to go around. So let's read this passage. I'll read it to you here now. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. 
The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel that seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. So this passage introduces a very famous biblical metaphor of God as the potter. And many of you indicated at the beginning of our time together that you had heard that kind of thing used before. And I just love how this starts. In verse 2, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. What an odd thing for God to say, as is so often the case. If I were God, I would do this differently. Right? Wouldn't you, if you were God, do something a little more remarkable if you wanted someone to hear your voice? God doesn't say, go to the temple and hear my voice. He doesn't say, go make a burnt offering or sacrifice and you'll hear my voice. He doesn't say, go to the tallest mountain in a remote Himalayan village and find a wise man and he will tell you my voice. He doesn't say, go to your prayer closet and you will hear my voice. He says, go down to the potter's house. And there you will hear my voice. See, God is present and ready to speak to us in these most simple of places. We don't have potter's houses here nowadays. I mean, we have churches called potter's house maybe, but... But imagine the the places you could go where you might hear God's voice where you didn't necessarily expect it. So this potter metaphor, you also see it in Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 45. And I think that when most people think about God as the potter and his people as the clay, they only think about it partially. In other words, they only think about the part that I asked you to read at the beginning of the sermon. Remember verse 6? Actually, it was just the first part of verse 6. said, Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, as usual, when we surgically remove a dozen or so words from the text of the Bible, it becomes really easy to miss the meaning of those words. I think a lot of people take this verse, this part of one verse, to mean that we are simply inanimate raw materials that God uses to shape us into whatever He wants to shape us into, whether we like it or not, 
And whether we turn into a beautiful pot or we get thrown into the fire or molded into something else is completely up to God and we have nothing to say about that. And if you just read this part of that verse in this passage, you could be forgiven for thinking that. Maybe you saw it on a calendar or something, you know, Bible verse a day calendar. So how many of you, I wonder, wrote down something along the lines of what I just said when I asked you to write down what, the, what this passage means? Something, something like that? You can sort of timidly just say, yeah, that was... The problem with that interpretation is that if you put this verse back into the context of the passage from where it came, the meaning is actually kind of the opposite of that. If you, if you look, look down to verses 8 and 9... Or 7 and 8 and 9. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. So apparently, the actions of human beings cause the creator of the universe to change his mind. And that's a pretty powerful thing to think about. And it's basically the complete opposite meaning that we tend to hear when we read this particular verse. And so, a really important question then is how are we going to apply this text to our lives? If, we, if we're going to reject the Bible verse a day calendar meaning, what are we going to think about here? And this is a question that we'll have to ask ourselves throughout this series, because I don't think that it's usually appropriate to assume a one-to-one relationship between the people of God at the time of the prophet Jeremiah and the people of God now. Let me say that again. I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to assume a one-to-one relationship between the people of God at the time of the prophet Jeremiah and the people of God now. Let me give you one big, fat example here. This passage that we're reading today speaks very clearly about the nation of Israel as the uh, unit of faithfulness. See what I mean? Like the nation on the whole turns to God or turns away from God to evil, and God deals with the nation as a people, right? And I think sometimes people will say, well, Jeremiah says that the nation needs to turn back to God. And so, our country needs to turn back to God. America has to turn back to God. In fact, as many, if not most of you are no doubt aware, a very prominent political figure recently stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and said basically that exact thing. The United States of America needs to turn to God. But I think you have to be careful with that type of interpretation of the book of Jeremiah. Now, don't mishear me. Do I think that America would be better off if all the people in it decided to turn to God and follow Him, turn from their evil and follow God? Yes, I absolutely think that would be a wonderful, beautiful thing if that happened. But A, I'm I'm not convinced that 
political action is the best way to accomplish that result. In fact, I'm basically convinced that it's a terrible way to accomplish that result. <laughs> because when you start putting your trust in politics, your allegiance becomes confused. <laughs> and you see this in both directions. Depending on what church you're in, they seem more strongly allied with their political beliefs than with their religious beliefs. And if you are going to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, you are going to have to argue with your political leaders no matter what party you're registered with. <laughs> we're not going to go down that road. <laughs> Leaving all the political stuff aside, that type of interpretation, that type of application of the book of Jeremiah ignores some of the basic realities of the world then and the world now. Because as I said, the nation at the time of Jeremiah was the unit of faithfulness. That was where God's calling and blessing were both delivered. And if you were part of the nation of Israel, you were in. And if you were a Gentile, you were out. That was basically the way it worked. Remember we talked two weeks ago in the, in the middle of that Colossians series about how there were really specific guidelines for whether you were inside or outside the religious community and, and the, the ways that you fixed that if you, if you fell out of favor with the community you had offered sacrifice and that sort of thing. And that your status within that community determines your status with God. And we talked about how because of what Jesus did on the cross, those rules, those means of salvation became defunct. Remember this when we talked about this? It says he, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. And therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in the observing of festivals or new moons or Sabbaths or all those religious rules. They became irrelevant. So in the new reality that Jesus brought about, this, your connection to a theocracy, a, a, a nation ruled by God, is not what saves you. That's not the way it works anymore. And so if you want to say that this passage now applies directly one-to-one -to, -one to the United States of America as a nation, then what you're actually saying is that you want to go back to that former state where the theocracy was where you found your salvation. And I'm not sure why anybody would want to do that. That was the old pre-Christian way of thinking about one's salvation. And that's the reason that I reject the political application of, of this passage. So, if we're not going to apply the passage here, Jeremiah 18, 1 to 11, if we're not going to apply that to the nation, because it clearly speaks to the nation, so we have to, we have to come up with some other way to apply it, how are we going to do that? Well, I would suggest that the best way to apply this is either to apply it to individuals, each one of you in the room, and, and myself included, and every other person who wants to follow God, or to apply it to the church. Now, depending on your ecclesiology, that is your theology of what the nature of the church is, you may have a strong preference toward one way or the other. Some of our Roman Catholic friends might be more inclined to say, we should apply this to the church because the church is the place where we encounter God. Some of our friends in, in very conservative evangelical traditions would be on the far other end of the spectrum and say we need to apply it to ourselves as individuals. And as is so often the case, I have kind of a middle ground opinion on this. 
I believe that our salvation comes based on our individual response to the work of Jesus Christ. And so the, the unit of faithfulness is no longer the nation, but it's not also the church either. It's the unit of faithfulness now, to use that term, is the individual person, his or her heart. But I also believe that no Christian should ever separate him or herself from the community of faith in some form or another. I believe as John Wesley did, John Wesley said, no one can be a Christian alone. I think that's true. Salvation is initiated in the heart of an individual believer, but it's lived out and nurtured within the church. Your faith is maintained in community with other people. But either way you look at it, whether you want to focus on the individual or focus on the church, I think that we could all come to agree on one thing, which is that we turn from the good that God wants for us, and we turn to the evil that we want for ourselves. Whether we do that as individuals or whether we do that as a church, I think both things are true. People turn from God. Churches turn from God. And the ultimate consequence of turning to evil is destruction. I think that part of the passage is fairly clear and easy to apply. But the beauty and the grace that comes in verse 8 and following also applies. Let me read this again now for a third time. But if that nation, and again, let's substitute person for nation, concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. That's a pretty good definition of grace, isn't it? If you turn from your evil, God will change his mind. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big theological statement. So let me ask you this. Are you a Christian or are we a church that right now needs to turn from our evil? Evil is kind of a, that's kind of a mean word, isn't it? But that's one of the words that I'm, we, I don't think we can substitute. We like to reserve evil for the, the goateed characters in action movies. The really cartoonish evil. The evil, right? And that, that makes it, that's called a straw man. That makes it really easy to, to say, well, that's not me. But anytime you turn from God and turn to fulfill your every desire, that inevitably be, will become evil. You're, the desire to have complete control over whatever you want to do in your life, no matter how it affects anybody else, that self-centeredness ultimately does lead to evil. And so what is the evil that you need to turn from? It's probably going to be something different for all of us. Think on that for just a minute. and you, We'd probably do well to think about that as a church too, but, but I'd ask you to think about it as, as an individual. 
do you need to turn from evil? And what is that evil? And as you're thinking about that, I want to return you to verse 4 in this passage because I think that's where this potter clay analogy really finds its meaning. You know, toward the end of the passage, there's lots of talk about destruction and so forth. And, and of course, if you know the history that's involved with this particular people group, that's what happened to them. But for the spoiled pottery, just to return it to the realm of the metaphorical for a minute, for the spoiled pottery in verse 4, the future is much more hopeful. And I love, I think this is so beautiful. When Jeremiah goes to the potter's house and he sees the potter making something on the wheel and it becomes spoiled in his hand, this is what happens. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. (laughs) He reworked it. When we turn away from God and turn to evil, we're like that spoiled clay on the wheel, like clay with a mind of its own. And if anybody's ever, like, tried to use a potter's wheel, you know that sometimes the clay seems like it has a mind of its own. It just sort of jumps off. We do have minds of our own. And what we do with those minds and the decisions we make, apparently, according to this passage, affects our fate with God. And when we, when we jump off that wheel and the vessel that God is trying to make us into becomes spoiled, the really wonderful, beautiful news is that he doesn't just throw that lump of clay into the trash and start with a new one. He starts over and reworks it into something else that, he, that seems good to him. What initiates that change, though, and don't miss this point, is our conscious decision to turn from our own evil. I could read your verse 8 again, but I think you get the point by now. (laughs) Within the church, we call this act repentance. We've all heard, all seen the signs that say repent and the end is near and all that stuff. And, And again, that kind of makes it into a caricature. But the reality of the need for our own personal decision to turn from our evil and turn to God is very clear. It requires swallowing your pride, admitting your role in the mess that you see all around you, and turning around. That's what the word repent means, just to turn. It's kind of an about face. The worst thing you can do when you discover that you're on the wrong road is keep going. (laughs) You have to turn around. And you're going to have to walk or drive back through all that mistake that you just made. But when we turn from our evil, we turn to Jesus. Now, many of you in the room, I know you, have long ago made the decision that you want to turn to Jesus. You want to follow Him. You want to be a Christian. That doesn't mean that you have not occasionally forgotten that. Don't we all do that? And then suddenly we're We're turned the other way again, and we just need that correction. Turn away. (laughs) Turn back to him. 
And I also know that many of you in the room, because I've, I've talked to many in this camp as well, have never made a deliberate decision to turn from their own wants and desires and to turn to Jesus. And one of the things I love about you as a group of people, um, artists and churches, that, that both of those types of people are in the room every week. Every week there are people who have been following Jesus forever and been screwing it up forever. <laughs> and every week there's people in the room who have never made a decision to follow him at all, and they're just here kind of trying to figure out whether that's the right thing or not. And so maybe if you're in that second group of people, you're, you, you are feeling that conviction about your own Call it what it is, evil. But you can turn to Jesus just like anyone else. You can't go far enough down that road that it's too late to turn back to him. As long as you're walking around, (laughs) sucking air. You can decide that you want to be faithful to him, that you want to be (laughs) one of those units of faithfulness. And when you do that, the nature of your relationship with God changes. For all of us who would want to turn from our evil, regardless of whether it's a a corrective or whether it's a first-time decision, the place that we come together and remember and celebrate and receive strength for that turning away from evil is the Lord's table. And that's why we celebrate it every week together because we all need that reminder that it is to Jesus that we have turned from our own evil. So whether you're a long-time Christian or a first-time turner from evil... (laughs) I'd like to invite you during the remainder of our service to participate in this sacrament that we celebrate each week. The Bible tells us that on the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat down with his disciples and he took bread and broke it and said, giving it to all of them, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it, all of you. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this wonderful image that we find in the prophet Jeremiah. View as the master potter and us as the clay. And we give you thanks for the, the beautiful reality that we are not just an inanimate lump of dirt, but that our response to you does matter and that you allow us to exercise the freedom of our wills. And maybe even more than that, we give you thanks that no matter how many times we step outside the bounds of what you've called us to, no matter how many times we turn away from Jesus and turn to our own devices and turn to evil, you are always willing to rework that vessel into something good. 
And so now as we come together around the table of our Lord, we pray, God, that uh, we would proclaim the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus. That we would receive his body and blood as food for our souls, as strength for the road that we must walk. And in so doing, that we would be united with each other, your body, the church, and united with our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who celebrate this same sacrament today. May it be for us a means of your grace, we pray, in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to continue to worship in song. Um, but our table's open now, and we'll be open for the rest of our service. If you'd like to spend some time in thought or prayer, there's no need to rush to the table. You're welcome to come at any point. And if you'd like to just sit and, and think or meditate instead of partaking of communion, that would be okay too. Um, and no one will look sideways at you. We're glad you're here, regardless of where you're at. Uh, but come as you hear his call in your life. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.